0: If you were to ask the Apostle Peter, what was one of the most defining moments in your life? I mean, what was was bigger? What was bigger than that experience at the Mount of Transfiguration to you? What was bigger than walking on water that day? What was bigger to you than that terrible night when you denied your Savior and the rooster crowed? Peter would say, I can tell you. I don't even have to think twice about it. The most defining moment of my life happened, and Luke recorded it in Acts chapter 10 and chapter 11. He said it was a watershed moment in my life. And and what transformed Peter's life that day could transform our lives this day. As a matter of fact, what took place there was the divine great physician did this miraculous eye and heart surgery on Peter to try to fix, and it did fix what Peter had been unwilling to look at for his entire life. He grew up that way, he thought that way, he believed that way, he felt that way, he lived that way, at least he was consistent. And as you're making your way to the book of Acts, chapters 10 and 11, um, I'm following up on a conversation that we had this past Sunday morning out of Luke chapter 16, the conversation on dead men talking. In the moment we're going to read Acts, I mean in a moment we're going to read Acts chapter 10 and not 11 but we're referring to 11. And this past Sunday morning I made a very, very, very brief statement about the American unchurched, the research came out of some work that Dr. Tom Rainer did several years ago. It's pretty fascinating to me. Tom Rainer, what he tried to do was help us in the church understand what the unchurched are saying and what the unchurched are thinking because we need to know that. It's very obvious in today's church culture, in our culture, that we live in a day where most people within the church think, that the unchurched don't want to hear anything that we've got to say. Nothing could be further from the truth. The unchurched say to us, we want to know what you think. We want to hear about the truth that you declare. We want to know what you say. Maybe you've seen this. If you've, if you've looked at the book, Unchurched Next Door, maybe you've seen this. But I referred to it on Sunday morning and, and I thought, Mike, you've got to go back. You need to unpack a little bit of this because this is where we are in America, In looking at all people across America, the tens of millions, the hundreds of millions of people across America, what Dr. Rayner did in Unchurched Next Door is he did some research and then he said, listen, basically in America there are five categories of individuals who are unchurched. There's the unchurched one, the unchurched two, the unchurched three, the unchurched four, the unchurched five, the U ones, the unchurched ones, those are the individuals that are highly receptive to the gospel. If you have a conversation with them about Christ, they are ready to accept Christ. They are ready to receive Him as their Savior. They're ready to lay their lives down for Him. They want to have a conversation with someone. They're praying, God, would you help me? They believe what truth is, but they need someone to help them navigate through it. And so they are highly receptive to the gospel, and there are a lot of them. Matter of fact, 11% or so of unchurched, which really represents 17 million people in this nation. The U2s, you wouldn't define them as highly receptive, but they are receptive to the gospel. They, They accept everything that the truth, that the Word of God says. They believe it. They're receptive to your conversations. They say things like, I'm not ready to accept Christ today. I'm not ready to be saved today. I'm not ready to become a Christian today, but I'm close. I'm close. Keep praying for me. I want to continue this conversation. The U2s are the unchurched that are receptive. They they represent 27% of the nation, 43 million people you know, the, the enemy and culture as a whole would have us believe they don't want you to talk to them. But the Unchurched says, I really want to hear what you got to say. The, the largest group across America, they are the Unchurched Three. Th- those are the individuals that are, that are neutral. You might use the word indifferent. They don't have any real clear signs of interest They're open to discussion. If you don't bring it up, they're fine with you. If you bring it up, they're fine with you. But they're kind of in that neutral middle ground of indifference. They don't really care either way. I'm going to go on with my life, do what I want to do. I'm not anti-God, but I'm really not pro-Jesus. And they represent the largest group. They represent 36% of the country. It's these last two categories that get the church all locked up. I'm sure not anybody in this room, but I'm just, you know, talking about other churches. The, the U4, the unchurched four, those are the folks that are antagonistic to the gospel. When you start talking to them about matters of faith, they bristle up. They're not mean about it. They're not mad about it. They won't punch you in the face. They won't cuss you out, but they really don't want to hear it. They're antagonistic. Some things have happened in their lives and they're not really interested in the conversation. They represent about 21%. Of the nation. This last category of the unchurched, the U5s, they're the ones that really lock us up. It's actually the smallest percentage of the whole group. There's only about 5% of the population that is highly antagonistic. Those are the ones they will cuss you out. They will say, How in the world do you blankety blankety believe that there actually is a God? They'll say things like, If there's a God in heaven, why in the world will he allow? They'll say that Bible that you read, it's just all full of lies and full of errors. And, and, and they'll attack your Jesus and they'll attack the cross and they'll attack the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They'll laugh at you for believing in a heaven and a hell. They will, they will quietly or loudly dismiss you from their presence. They don't want to talk about it and they're mad about it. They only represent about 5% of the population. And, and, and they just, they tear us out of our frame because so many of us are so afraid to have a conversation with an individual about the things of the faith because we're so worried about this 5%. It is so interesting to me that all across the nation, there are always a very small percentage of people that are trying to get the majority of us to go a certain way, to think a certain way, to believe a certain way. And they're about 2%, maybe 3%. In this case, this group is 5%. And those of us who stand on truth, who live truth, who love truth, who love faith, we go, now wait a minute, 5%? It's interesting to me when I'm looking at this, I've heard a lot of people say, people don't want to hear, Mike, about these things of the faith, but that is a lie. That is not the truth. Not, it's not everyone. Not everyone wants to hear about the faith, but there are multitudes of people, multitudes of people. They want to know the truth. There are multitudes of people that you know and that I know who desire a different life than they're living. Multitudes of people who, they they know something important is broken inside of them, but they're not sure what to do to fix it. And everything everything they've tried has failed. And many of them are open and receptive to the gospel. I wish that church historians had just been honest and told us the truth. The truth is, it's not that folks out there don't want to hear the gospel is folks in here don't want to share the gospel. And I'm not just picking on, on, on us. I'm saying churches across this land, um, you know, or, or maybe some of us do want to share the gospel, but we're, we're afraid we're going to mess it up or we're afraid we'll say the wrong thing and it'll, it'll go a wrong direction. And you know that the only thing, I hope you know the only thing that you can mess up with the good news is if you muzzle the good news. I, I, just, I just hope you know that. But in case you didn't, I thought I would mention it. So here, here is a very pleasantly startling statement. Nearly 17 million people in the United States will accept Christ if they are presented with the gospel. Another 43 million are close. 60 million people. Right now, highly receptive or receptive to the gospel. And today that number might be 50 million. And tomorrow that number might be 80 million. Only God himself knows what the number is. But our problem is so often we don't see it. So often we don't see the opportunities. We don't see the people. We need to experience what Peter experienced in Acts 10 and 11, which is why we're going there tonight. And as we read it, There's going to be a couple of times, maybe three as we read it, I point at you. And when I point at you, I just want you to say one word. The word is Gentiles. Gentiles, not a word we use a lot, but Gentiles are the people who were not the people of God. They were not of the family of Israel. They were not the chosen. Israel looked at them like a bunch of pagan dogs. You're the worst people that ever lived on the face of the planet. We hate you, don't want to be around you, we don't want to talk to you, we're not living near you. Can't stand you. They were the Gentiles. So when I point at you, then out loud, you're going to say this word. Gentiles. Gentiles. Because in Acts chapter 10, which is, I hope, where you are, something happened in Peter's life that changed his whole perspective on eternity, his whole perspective on himself, his whole perspective on people, even his perspective on God. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 and 11. Getting ready to read it though before we read it. Would you bow your heads with me? So Father, this is your book. This is your truth. And God, we could say this is our lives, but the truth is that our lives belong to you because you bought and paid for us at Calvary. Even these bodies are not our own. They belong to you. This heart, these lungs, this mouth, this mind... It belongs to you. God, somehow I pray that you turn on some lights in our heads and in our hearts to see what it is that you showed Peter that day that so transformed everything about him and and changed history itself and changed the church moving forward and, and still affects us today. So God, I pray, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through the words of this truth that we hold in our hands, your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. There was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment, which means he was a Gentile. Gentile. But verse 2 says he was a devout man, feared God along with his whole household. He did many charitable deeds, for the jewish people not just everybody i mean for the around him but but also for the jewish people and he always prayed to god interesting godly religious a man of prayer a man of charity good deeds a man of kindness a godly guy but he didn't know jesus in our vernacular we'd say he was lost he, he wasn't saved he he was as religious as he could be. He was as good humanly speaking as he could have been. But he was lost. And, and it says in verse 3, chapter 10, book of Acts, at about three in the afternoon, he distinctly saw in a vision an angel of God who came in and said to him, Cornelius. Interesting, isn't it? Gentile, an angel from God, comes, stands before him, calls his name. And instead of being totally afraid, he says, he looked intently at him. He did become afraid, but he said, what is it, Lord? And he told him, your prayers and your acts of charity have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and call for Simon, who's also named Peter. He's he's lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had gone... He called two of him, I mean Cornelius, called two of his household slaves and a devout soldier who was one of those who attended him. And after explaining everything to them, he sent them off to Joppa. So you've got the picture. Cornelius, who is a, who is a godly man, prays. God sends an angel from heaven, stands before him and said, Cornelius, your prayers have come up to God. Now this is what I want you to do. I want you to send... An entourage down to Joppa. Go find a man by the name of Simon Peter. Here's where he's staying. In Joppa. Verse 9. Here's also what happens. The next day as they were traveling and nearing the city. Peter went up to pray on the housetop at about noon. Which was the time of prayer. One, One of the times of prayer. While he's praying... It happened to him like it happens at you. Sunday about 1215, he became hungry. He wanted to eat. But while they were preparing something, he went into a visionary state. He had a vision. And he saw heaven open and an object coming down that resembled a large sheet being lowered to the earth by its four corners. And in it, in the sheet were four, the, all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and birds of the sky. And then a voice said to him, get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Now, if, if we used to live in New Orleans, if he'd have been a Cajun, he'd, he'd eaten everything in that sheet. But, but his whole life, his whole life, there, almost maybe everything in that sheet it was taboo, it was forbidden, it was unclean. You didn't look at it, you didn't shoot it, you didn't dress it out, you didn't get a tag in your hunter's, t- you didn't have a season on it, you didn't touch it. It was, it was unclean. And Peter was a good Jewish boy, man, and these things were off limits, they were, they were taboo. Matter of fact, earlier on, down through the generations, a whole bunch of things in that sheep, the Lord said, these are taboo, don't touch them, don't. I want a distinction between my people and all the other peoples of the earth. So Peter was just doing what he thought was right. And then the the Lord says, Peter, fry you some shrimp. I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure in heaven there's going to be pig picking, fried catfish, sweet tea, fried okra. Vine ripened tomato slices, homemade biscuits, homemade biscuits, homemade biscuits. <laughs> Dr. Pepper, like, pretty sure it's all gonna be there. But this isn't heaven, and Peter looks at the sheet and he says, I can't touch any of this stuff. And this conversation's taking place between Peter and the Lord, and he, he actually says in verse 14, and those two words never go together for the child of God, but he says it, No, Lord. Because if you say, no, he's not Lord, at least at that moment in your life, he's always Lord. He's always King, whether I obey him or not, or whether I listen to him or not, or whether I follow him or not, he's still going to be Lord. And I'm going to stand before him and give an account of my life. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But in the context, what it's saying is at that moment in his life, Peter's going off on his own. He's, I'm not doing what you say. No, Lord. For I've never eaten anything common and unclean. Again, a second time voice said to him, what God has made clean, you must not call common. This happened three times and then the object was taken up into heaven. So you've got the picture, Peter's on the rooftop. It's the time of prayer, God sends a vision. Here comes this, this vision, this sheep coming down with all this stuff in it, he can't eat. And God says, eat it. He says, I'm not gonna do it. Second time, God says, eat it, I'm not gonna do it. Third time, God says, eat it. Don't you call unclean, what I call clean. Don't you turn your nose up at what I say do. You know where God's going with this. Because you hear the pitter patter of sandals coming down the dusty street. They're making their way around the corner. They get to his house and it says, verse 17, while Peter was deeply perplexed about what the vision he had seen might mean, the men who'd been sent by Cornelius Having asked direction to Simon's house, stood at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was also named Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was thinking about the vision, the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit of God, told him, three men are here looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and accompany them with no doubts at all, because I have sent them. I have sent them. I've sent the Gentiles, Peter, to your house. I've sent them to your house. Verse 21, Peter went down to the men. He said, here I am, the one you've been looking for. What's the reason you're here? And they said, verse 22, they said, Cornelius, Gentile, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who has a good reputation with the whole Jewish nation, was divinely directed by a holy angel to call you to his house and to hear a message from you. Peter invited him in, they gave him lodging. The next day, he got up and he set out with them. Some of the brothers from Joppa went with him. It's a fascinating story. I hope you read the rest of chapter 10 and, and chapter 11 tonight. It's a fascinating story. Peter shows up at Cornelius' house, and about the first thing that comes out of his mouth, instead of, let me tell you about Jesus, God loves you, Cornelius. Life is going to be so much better with him than it's ever been without him. The first thing that comes out of his mouth is basically, you know I shouldn't be here. Us Jews who are clean and the nation and the family of God, we don't have anything to do with you Gentile dogs. And I don't even really know why. He didn't, I mean, when he started talking, the first thing that came out of his mouth was not edification. It wasn't kind. It wasn't thoughtful. (laughs) It, it, It was like, that's the worst thing you could possibly say. It is interesting that when you are where God wants you and you're doing what God wants you to do, sometimes the words that come out of your mouth that you think are the dumbest thing you could say, God still uses them. I've seen it over and over and over again. I've watched people in the middle of trying to share their faith that they say stuff. It's like, I don't even know what I said. And all of a sudden people got tears going down their faces and they go, and then they get saved. Peter, he, it's, it's crazy what the man says, but 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 the same guy who writes the story of the rich man and Lazarus writes this story in Acts. Now, don't miss this. Cornelius, he was a what? He was a Gentile. Jews avoided the Gentiles, didn't like them, didn't want to be around them. True or false? God loved Cornelius. He absolutely loved Cornelius. He loved Cornelius as much as he loved Peter. Peter didn't like Cornelius. The vision on the rooftop was not about the animals in the sheet. sheet. Had nothing to do with the animals in the sheet. It was about Peter, I want you to look and to accept people that you have been avoiding your whole life. And people that you have judged and things and people that you've said are unclean and that you didn't want to have anything to do with. Peter, I want you to stop the way that you treat other people who are not like you, who don't live like you, who don't believe like you, who don't think like you. They don't have the same heart as you. Peter, they're lost. How do you expect a lost person to act? They used to they used to lock me up too. A pastor friend helped me out one day. He said, Mike, they're lost. How do you expect them to act? How would you expect them to know that? They don't know Jesus. I shrunk about God says, Peter, don't avoid these people that I love. You go to them. True or false, right now, in the United States of America, there are multitudes, tens of millions of people who are highly receptive or receptive to the gospel and all they need is someone who cares enough about them to share with them the truth that will set them free. True or false? That is true. That is true. So I'm I'm standing outside a church building, I'm in South Carolina, I'm talking with a pastor and um, and this is what I heard him say, church, he said, I can almost quote him, he said, I tell my people, don't worry about evangelism, you just get them down here to the church house, end quote. I wanted to hit him in the mouth, I, I, I I couldn't believe he was saying that. You're, you're t- I didn't say this, but inside, you know, I'm sitting, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside, I'm, I'm thinking, you're telling your people to not go out into their communities and into their culture and share the love and the life and the light of Jesus Christ. You, you just want them to get them down here to the church, and then maybe they'll get saved if they come into the building. Most of the people aren't coming into the building. They're not. Upstairs in my study, one of the books on the shelf is 10 Surprises from the Unchurched. 10 Surprises from the Unchurched. I won't give you all 10. I thought you'd be really interested in these four. This was a research project. Surprise number one. 82% of the unchurched are somewhat likely to attend church if you and I will simply invite them. What was that percentage? 82%. So eight out of 10 people are somewhat likely to show up if I care enough just to invite them to church. That's not the gospel. That's just inviting in the church. That's not really sharing my life and my heart and sharing the love and the life of Christ. That's just inviting in the church. Should I do that? Sure, I should do that. It's not as good as going ahead and sharing the gospel with them. But it's, it's not a terrible second just to invite them. Because if they come in here, chances are, you know, many of them do get saved. But what if they got saved standing at their job site beside of you? At the nurse's station beside of you? At the service station beside of you? At the grocery store beside of you? The front porch swing beside of you? Out on the ball field beside of you? But, but this is just about 82% that are somewhat likely to attend if they're invited. And um, what really racked my brain was only 2% nationally, this is nationally, only 2% nationally of church members ever even invite anyone to church. Does that surprise you? Only 2% nationally care enough to even invite them to church, let alone invite them to Christ. Does that bother you? Look at the person beside you and say, that really should bother you. That really should bother you. Rainer said this. He said, walk with me through a few simple calculations. Let's suppose that instead of 82%, only half the unchurched in America would come to church if invited. That means that out of 160 million unchurched persons, 80 million people would be willing to come to church. Can you imagine how many people would be reached for Christ if that happened? That's just if we invite them. Don't raise your hand. Have you invited anybody lately? You said it too quick. Have you invited anyone lately? Yep. How about between now and Sunday? Sure. Raise your right hand and repeat after me. Oh, go ahead. It won't hurt that bad. Say, well, I'm uncomfortable doing that. I promise you the discomfort that they are going to feel in eternity is a lot worse than the discomfort you're going to feel by just inviting them. So raise your right hand. (laughs) I will do my best to invite somebody to come to church Sunday. How about that? Would you do would you do that? Would you just would you just do that? Lightning is not gonna strike you if you don't. Well, I raised my hand, but I really didn't mean it, but people were looking at me, so I went ahead and round. I'm just saying, 82 percent of people will are somewhat likely to come if you'll invite them. I'm addressing directors of missions in the Atlanta, Georgia area. And, um, of course, we were talking about evangelism, but I asked asked the directors of missions, and what directors of missions are, they're they're godly men, they're great men, and and each director of mission, he's kind of in charge of, of helping a bunch of churches in his association. And so there were all these directors of missions that represented about 200 different churches around one part of Atlanta, not all of Atlanta, just part of Atlanta. So I'm having a conversation, and I asked these directors of missions, called DOMs, Directors of Missions. I asked them this question. I said, guys, of all the churches that you represent, what percentage of people around the churches that you represent would you say are unchurched or never churched? Because there's a growing population right now in America. It's not just unchurched. I ought to go back. There's a growing population of I've never been, and I don't, I don't want to go, and I don't even think that I should be there, and, and they are the never-churched. Little Chloe, little Chloe said to me, not, not our Chloe in middle school, um, but a different Chloe, she said, she said, this is the first time I've ever been in church. I've never been to church in my life. The, ne- the never-churched. I asked them, what percentage of people around the churches that you represent would you say are either unchurched or never church now understand this is south this is the bible belt this is like the buckle of the bible belt there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of churches around the Atlanta area and these guys represent about 200 of those churches so take a guess what do you think their answers were what percentage of people around the churches that you represent would you say are either unchurched or never churched these are highly intelligent guys What do you think the percentage is? Take a guess. So we got 80%. Somebody else? What do you think? What do you think? What percentage? What percentage do you think? 85, 65. In the back, those of you who are sleeping, in the back. um, No. Is that 6% or 60%? So, so they said, they said, and you're not sleeping, I'm just messing with you. They, they said the, the lowest number, the director of missions had said the lowest number of people around the churches that I represent that are unchurched or never churched is 75%. The highest number, one of the directors of missions, he said 93% of the people that are around the church that, that, that I represent They're either unchurched or they're never churched. Guess what? That's a lot closer to the truth at an address near you. Two surprises, three more surprises from, ten surprises from the unchurched. Surprise number two. Very few of the unchurched have had someone share with them how to become a Christian. And Christians have not been particularly influential in their lives. And a little hurts, doesn't it? A lot of the unchurched say, nobody's ever even invited me. And when I look around, there's, there's not hardly any Christians that are very influential in my life. I don't know, something about the scripture that just tells us, listen... What matters to people should matter to us. What they care about, we should care about. Something about investing in their lives and being involved in their lives. And, and, and I know it's more about than just salvation, but most of them say no one's ever even talked to us. Uh, surprise number three. The unchurched would like to develop a real and sincere relationship with a Christian. That's what they say. That's not what we said. I didn't just type that in, you know, because it kind of sounded good. I'm saying the unchurched say, I would like to have a a real and sincere relationship with a Christian. Does that surprise you? At least act like it. Does that surprise you? And, And this doesn't surprise you. Surprise number four, many of the unchurched are far more concerned about the spiritual well-being of the children than they are of themselves. That doesn't surprise you, does it? Now, now here at Lamb's, um, we we post snipers around, and you know if parents just drop off their children and try to drive off, we shoot their tires out. But you know we, we don't we don't we don't let people know that. Wait, this is online, isn't it? So, so we don't do that. We don't we don't do that. But. A lot of parents are more concerned about the spiritual well-being of their children than they are the spiritual well-being of themselves. That's that's, that's a whole other set of issues, but we got a lot of great kids in this church. I mean, I'm thinking about the middle school and the high school students' lives were changed and impacted at journey camp just a few weeks ago. I wish you could have been there. I wish you could have been there to see church after church after church after church after church, after church including Lamb's Chapel on that Friday morning service, and the students are standing in the water. To, they profess Christ as their Savior. They've been born again by the Spirit of God, and they say, I want to be baptized in front of God and everybody. I am unashamed. I am going to follow Jesus to the end of my days. And, and if you'd have just if you'd have seen them, Uh, There were about 12, 14 from Lamb's Chapel, but it wasn't just Lamb's Chapel. It was tons of other churches, and it was a a beautiful time. Next week, you know, our our kids go off to kids' camp, and multitudes of children are going to be saved next week too. And there are going to be some kids, some kids, third graders, fourth graders, fifth graders that hear the call of God on their lives for ministry. It's an amazing thing. I know you're going to be praying next week for them. It's it's a big deal. Rainer stated that after nearly 10 years of doing research and almost 15 years of doing interviews with churches, one of the astounding conclusions that his research has surfaced is nearly 130 million people in the United States would come to church if they were invited. And if they came, many would hear about our Savior who offers the only way of salvation. Sometimes our eyes are closed. That was Peter's problem. It was Peter's problem. He's, he's on the rooftop and his eyes are open in prayer to God, but his eyes are closed to the people that God cares about. It's a problem. It's been a problem for me. I imagine for a lot of us in this room, that's been a problem for us. We'll, we'll open our eyes in prayer and praise to God, but we'll close our eyes to the people that are around us. You know, some of them that we don't like, they're different than we are. They smell funny. They eat stuff that we don't even know how to pronounce. They, 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 they do things that we can't even imagine. We don't want to imagine. They, they, they have some weird, strange beliefs. They, 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 they might have multiple gods. A, th- a thousand things and, and, and we're, we're uncomfortable. We're uncomfortable. And we're hoping someone's going to reach them. Why couldn't it be us? Why, why couldn't it be me? Why couldn't it be you? Why couldn't it be the person beside of you? Why, why couldn't it be all of us? Why couldn't more students reach more students? Why, why couldn't more young couples reach more young couples? Why? Well, how do you have to be? You just have to be saved. You, you just, really, you just, you just have to be saved. Peter's on the rooftop. The great physician's trying to open his eyes and it's it's hard for him because gentiles are they're hard people the soil is hard I, I'm in salt lake city it's, it's it's October a few years ago I'm, I'm going to be working with some some church leaders and 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 of course, we're there for evangelism and um on Monday night, i'd invited Dennis to come over and speak to the pastors and the church leaders that were there at the event and Dennis pastored a church across the state line. Now, we were in Salt Lake City, Utah. Dennis pastored a church across the state line up in Idaho at the big metropolis of Burley, Idaho. How many of you have ever heard of Burley, Idaho? Raise your hand. Going once, going twice. Burley, Idaho is in the middle of nothing. We've got a young man here who's raised his hand. You've heard of Burley? Or you just wanted to raise your hand and stretch it? It's all good. It's all good. Burley, no one ever heard of Burley, Idaho. And... um. Dennis was pastoring there. It's very, very hard soil. It's it's Mormon country. You need some stats to get a perspective. When Dennis first went to First Baptist Church Burley, there were 100 people in his church. 100 people in his church. The community was 50% Mormon. Within one year of him being there, and the Spirit of God gets the credit, but within one year of Dennis being there, he and his people in the church had won as many people to faith in Christ as attended the church when he first came a year earlier. Guys, that's, that's pretty incredible. Matter of fact, that, that, that small membership church there is, no small, there is no such thing as a small church. Uh, it might be 20 people, but if those 20 people are doing what God has called them to do, they are mighty in the sight of God, and the kingdom of God is just as excited about, about them. So they were a small membership church, but they weren't a small church. You know what I'm saying? So this small membership church of 100 people made such an impact in the community of Burley, Idaho, that the church leaders down at the Mormon Tabernacle, down in Salt Lake City, which was where we were at Salt Lake City, not at the Mormon Tabernacle, but in the city. The, the, the church leaders at the Mormon Tabernacle said, we got to send more missionaries up to Burley to reclaim lost ground because the people at First Baptist Burley are winning so many people to Christ. Something about busting up the dark. And so on that Monday night, Salt Lake City, one of the encouragement that Dennis gave that he shared with the leaders that were there in the church was the power of the gospel to change lives. This humble, humble man. in it's very hard place of Burley. I believe now he's at Valencia Community Church somewhere in California, but uh, Dennis is. But I've never forgotten those humble words that he gave that, that Monday night. Because I knew that when Dennis went to Burley, People told him how difficult the work was, how hard the soil was, how tough evangelism would be. Somehow or another, dear people of God, we've got to get in our minds that we've got to resolve this issue. Is the gospel able to save or isn't it? Is is Jesus enough or isn't he? Is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Savior of the world? Are the doors of eternal life for whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord? Or isn't it? Who are you going to listen to? Acts 10 will help me. And I know what some folks are thinking. Well, you know, Mike, I, I understand about those. U1s and U2s, those highly receptive and receptive people, you know, who come to Christ just if you'll have a conversation with them. But, you know, I I work around a lot of those U5s. I got a bunch of U5s in my family. tree. Go ahead, raise your hand if you thought that, at least you thought that. The rest of you are lying. I know you're thinking that. Listen, this is the truth. This is the truth. The Apostle Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, He was a U5. He was highly antagonistic to the gospel. He was highly antagonistic to the church. He was part of murdering the leadership of the church. As a matter of fact, he's on his way to Damascus to try to tear down the work of God. And these horrible people who are believers in this risen Savior, I'm going to destroy them. He had his papers in hand. And on the way to Damascus, this man who was very sincere in what he believed, he met someone on the road to Damascus. He went from a U5 to a U1 like that. Most people go from a five to a four to a three to a two to a one. Paul went from a five to a one just like that. I, you know, may, may may it somehow be that God would work in our lives that the crosshairs of our compassion would be upon people. What people? All people. I, I know some of them are tough. Some of them stink. They're rough. They cuss you. They they lie. They lie about you. They steal stuff from you. They 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 don't believe what you believe. They don't accept the Christ that you serve. They, but they're they're lost. And you don't want them to be lost. And you certainly don't want them to be lost forever. Steve Green sang these words years ago. It's, it's an old song but it still melts my heart. He said, Every, every day they pass me by, I, I can see it in their eyes. Empty people filled with care. Headed who knows where. On they go with private pain, living fear to fear. Laughter hides their silent cries. Only Jesus here. People need the Lord. At the end of their broken dreams, he's the open door. People need the Lord. People need the Lord. When will we realize that people need the Lord. We're called to take his light to a world where wrong seems right. What could be too great a cost for sharing life with one who's lost? Through his love our hearts can feel all the grief they bear, and they must hear the words of life only we can share. People need the Lord. Unchurched people, churched people, never churched people, all people, they need the Lord. It's it's amazing what we don't see when we're not looking. Peter's on the rooftop and he's not looking. Or if he does look down, it's like, I don't like those people. But it's incredible what God does through us when we are looking. Looking at people who are, who are far from God, but, but they're close to us. Chanley, she was an Appalachian State student. She's trying to make a little money in the summer by being a guide in a whitewater raft. She didn't know much about whitewater rafts. But I got it. She needed the money. So we're we're in the boat with her. We're going down the river. At some, at some point in the river, um, she says, she says, I was raised Roman Catholic. But what I'm doing is I'm searching the world for world religions. And when I find one that I like, that's what I'm going to believe. Quote, that's what she said. We go through a rapid and the front of the boat goes down and the back of the boat goes up. And Chanley, she's not a real experience. And she goes out of the boat. She flies out of the boat into the rapid. And I thought, this is not a good thing. (laughs) So we we get our boat over and we rescue the guide and we bring her back into the boat. And um, we're going down the river and we're talking, laughing, we're having a good time. And and we go through another rapid, and the front of the boat goes down, the back of the boat goes up, and Chanley, she goes out. <laughs> we keep having to rescue the guy. True story. It's over. I, I'm remembering, I'm standing, I'm standing there in the tack room where all those smelly vests, you know, they're wet, and they got mold on them. There's that smell, you know, in a whitewater facility. You know the smell I'm talking about. And, and I said, Chanley, I said, um, I know you're searching the world for truth. But truth has a name, and his name is Jesus Christ. Tears start running down her face. She says, I don't know why I'm crying. I knew why she was crying. The conversation continued. The time ended. We had to go. So, uh, so, so we said, hey, can we come back and take you out for breakfast one morning? Because, you know, college students, you know, they're always poor and they need to eat, so... So we drove, we drove over to Boone and met her at a restaurant. It's interesting, God, I said, you choose the restaurant, you choose the table, you choose the place. Where she chose, there wasn't another person in the whole restaurant. There was just, you know, Cheryl Nye, and I and the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, you know. And, and we start talking again, tears running down her face. She says, I don't, I don't know why I'm crying. We spoke for about an hour and then she looked at her watch and she really wasn't putting us off. She really did have to go. She was late. She was, le- she was late. And so before she ran out the door, I said, hey, come to the house sometime. We'll feed, you. we'll feed you dinner. What do you like? She was a vegetarian. I didn't know what those people were. I, I never understood that. I, I, I thought that all people were supposed to have seven pounds of red raw meat in their gut at all times. And, and uh, uh, Dennis gonna get a witness. I said, Is that right? That's right. So Cheryl made some concoction, I don't remember what it was, it wasn't very good, but it was a it was <laughs> but it was you know something that a vegetarian would eat, and she ate it and and um she brought a friend with her that day distraction, distraction, so we tied her friend up in the basement and and we and we um were sitting in the living room trying to trying to you know not be distracted by the screams in the basement but but well, I can't forget, you know, Ch- Chanley, she got down on her knees. She knelt down beside that ugly blue sofa that we had in the living room. and Paul, not the one you sold us. This was a different sofa. <laughs> and she prayed. She said, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I want your forgiveness in my life. And Lord Jesus, today, I give you my life. And I accept you as my Savior. She prayed, she prayed a lot of other things, but that that girl who walked in in darkness walked out in light. I'm just saying there's a lot of people like that around us here in Alamance County and all over the state and all over the country. And I'm just thinking if we'll like Peter on the rooftop, if we just... Pray and allow God to open our eyes to see people that we haven't been willing to see. To see. One other thing. You you just need to know about it. Whether you're part of it or not, I hope you're part of it. Um, Cheryl and I have a dear friend, uh, Dennis Peathers. He and his wife Lynn, they live about 30 miles outside of London, England. He's an evangelist. He's an ordained evangelist in England. In England, they don't ordain evangelists. They only ordain their vicars, their pastors. But Dennis is an exceptional man, and he's actually an ordained evangelist in the UK. That's a very rare thing. But he travels the world and he talks to people a lot. And, uh, matter of fact, he spoke to the middle school a couple years ago upstairs in the loft. But, Dennis, um, this passage that we're in today has transformed his ministry. As a matter of fact, he was in a best Western in Virginia. You know, snow was on the ground, and he and I travel a thousand miles together, going across the country, talking to different people, and blah blah blah. And he and and he said, "I'm in Best Western, and God puts this passage." And I start I start reading this passage, and God opened my eyes. And ever since then, he's been putting together a a coalition of people across literally across the world. You you can read it. It's the Rooftop. dot org comes out of. Acts 10 and 11, The Rooftop, therooftop.org. And here's the goal. This year, October the 2nd, which is a Sunday, 2022, this is not what this message is about, but you just need to know it. Dennis's prayer is a global encounter with God's people across the world that in a hundred nations in the world, a hundred nations across the world, God's people would get together. It might be a small group of one or two people. It might be a large group of 500 people. Where they come together and in this passage, they get up on a high place and they look down and they ask, God, would you give me a fresh vision for people? Because really evangelism, I think it's Dennis' definition of evangelism. He says, evangelism is leaving a person with a better understanding of God than, than they would have had they never met me. That's a pretty good definition. Evangelism is leaving a person with a better understanding of God than they would have had they never met me. Had they never met you. So what if what if, you and I just, what if you and I just prayed, God, would you put somebody on my heart? Would you put somebody in my path that, 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 that I could share love and life and light with? And some of them might be you ones. They come to Christ just like that. Some of them might be you twos. It might take you two or three weeks or a couple of months. Some of them might be you threes. It might, it might take you a year. <sighs> some of them might be you fives. It might take you the rest of your life. But the rest of eternity would be worth it. And I, and I bet you, I promise you, if, if you said, God, would you, would you put that burden on me? I promise you, he wouldn't say, no, not interested in that one. There's been a lot of prayers I prayed down to the years that God said, I'm not interested in that one. That's not the direction I'm going. But this one, every time. Oh, I'm all about that, he says. You just Watch. And I will create divine appointments. I will create opportunities in your life. You open your mouth, I will fill it. Don't worry about saying the wrong thing. You just share me and you watch what I do. God, I pray. I pray that you would use us to bust up darkness. I pray that you would use us to make a difference in the lives of people that we like. and God even people that we don't like so much Lord a hundred years from now there's not a one of us in here that we're not going to be here it's not even going to take that long we're going to stand before you we're going to praise you we're going to live before your presence we are going to live in eternity forever and it's going to be glorious and it's going to be beyond what we could ask or think and our minds can't even conceive of how great it's going to be but between now and then There's a lot of people, God. There's a lot of people that you want us to reach. And if we don't, if we don't, they won't be reached. God, there's people, if if we don't, nobody else is going to. You've, You've entrusted this with us. We stand on the rooftop tonight and we look down on them. God, I pray that you'd help us to see inside of them. And I pray that you as the divine physician would not just open our eyes, but open our hearts to care about who you care about. One day, (laughs) tears are going to stream down our face when we hear them pray that prayer. There'll be nights we can't even sleep because we've seen seen how you have changed their trajectory of their family trees. Mom and dad are saved now and the kids are in church and mom and dad are serving and the addictions are gone. The pornography is gone. The busted up marriage relationship is gone and what has replaced it is life and joy and excitement. Salvation. Lord, we need your help. It's not our words of wisdom. It's not our personalities, God. It's it's not our smarts. It's your spirit. So, Lord, we yield ourselves to you this night from the rooftop. We pray that you would do a work in us. Do a work in us. In Jesus' holy name, for your kingdom's sake, we pray. Amen.